1: Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
2: Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash, is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and
1: find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I kind of
3: short circuited my own usual, I don't know, castle of protections or my own usual um, safety parameters and just did something really impulsive, which was in this case, eating this random mushroom that I found Um, (laughs) almost, almost in like a kind of Alice in Wonderland type way, I think of like, maybe this will make me grow giant, or maybe this will make me suddenly become a hippie. I don't know.
0: I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Allegra Hyde is the author of the short story collection Of This New World. And just recently, she released her debut novel, Eleutheria, which tells the story of Willa, the orphaned daughter of survivalist conspiracy theorists who stumbles across a guide to fighting climate change called Living the Change. Willa drops everything to fly to the island where the guide's author is constructing a utopian eco-warrior project, which turns out to be, of course, more complicated than she expects. Allegra came on the show to talk about her own experiences living in communes, her ambivalent attraction to climate utopianism, and the day her life changed when she went hiking in the woods and ate an unidentified mushroom.
3: A little over 10 years ago, I was in New Zealand, um, and I was traveling, and for a number of reasons, I I picked a mushroom um that I had no idea uh, I knew nothing about um and i I ate it um, and it, what? it it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's really absurd and i it's the sort of thing that i I did it, and then things happened, and I forgot about it for years but recently, ten years later, I've been thinking about that moment and just the outrageousness of that moment and why I did it. And uh, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's definitely a, a threshold that I crossed, kind of both in the sense that I, I didn't die. Um, I, and I, I should also say that I, I don't think I ate it with um, suicidal ideation in any way, but I did eat it kind of in a moment of not Liking who I was and wanting a kind of transformation. And I think it was the end point of a, um, or the transformative part of a, a, a journey that I had been on at that time. <laughs> I think the special necessitates a lot of context.
0: <laughs> give, yeah, give me all the context.
3: Basically, uh, after I graduated from undergrad, I, like many new graduates, was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and who I was going to be. And at first, I um, pursued a um, fellowship in human ecology um, in the Bahamas. Um, and that, that does have some relevance on my novel. Um, but I, while I was there, I also just had a great sense of being in the, the wrong place. And kind of doing the wrong thing and that I was kind of on a track to be a person I I didn't want to be, which is to say a person who was um, organizing their life around uh, this treadmill of like achievement and sort of academic stepping stones. And I didn't didn't want to be a a scientist or a social scientist, um, even though I admired people working in those fields. And so, in order to solve that kind of crisis, I decided I wanted to be someone who was the complete opposite of who I had been up until that point, which was a kind of type A overachiever in many ways. So I decided I would go to New Zealand um, and become a hippie. Uh, so I I booked this ticket. It basically used up all my uh, all my funds that I had, my life savings, um, and I, I went there. And my idea was that I would um, stay at various hippie communes. New Zealand, I knew from reading about it, had more intentional communities per capita than any other country. Um, there was a lot of utopian energy. There was a lot of hippie activity there. And I felt like i could I could remake myself there, um, maybe it had something to do with it, the country being on the other side of the world as well, um, and being this sort of inverse of um, of the world I knew um, upside, like upside down different seasons, and I thought that maybe I would be able to be a, a different version of myself there.
0: What was interesting to you about?
3: Communalism. I've always been really obsessed with utopian communities, intentional communities. Ever since I first learned they existed, I think I'm I'm drawn to idealists. I admire the bravery it takes to kind of step away from a uh, a a mainstream society and try to live differently. Um, But then I also recognize and in some ways find. Compelling the fact that these idealistic enterprises always run up against human fallibility and always run up against just logistical challenges. and that um, that paradox of um, idealism and um, and human fallibility endlessly fascinates me and um, to kind of be able to go to New Zealand and and participate in um, communities that were actively trying to live differently um, and, and problem solve in different ways was, um, was really appealing to me, uh, having, having studied and observed them for um, many years.
0: And what was the one you landed in?
3: Well, I had my sight set on this place called Rainbow Valley first, which was on the South Island and it, it took me a little while to get there because I was like hitchhiking. I was um, working volunteering on organic farms just to have a place to stay. And I also got sidetracked at a, a hippie festival that seemed like it would <laughs> um, be useful to visit uh, or to to experience. Um, and, but eventually I made my way to Rainbow Valley, which was this incredible um, site in, uh, uh, kind of next to a river and surrounded by mountains. And there's all these like wood hewn buildings and hippie touches everywhere with like stained glass and little sculptures. And it had been founded in the seventies, I think, and, and persisted. So I think the longevity of that community was really exciting. Um, but what I, I kept running up against it at rainbow Valley and at, um kind of these other um hippie venues <laughs> that i i went to is that i i it, i couldn't just like um fit myself into the shape of uh a particular lifestyle just at will um i i still had the impulse to like um exercise for instance or uh um take notes on things. It wasn't easy to just sort of shed my overachiever perfectionistic uh, (laughs) um, impulses that I'd I'd had for so long. So I always was like trying to figure out how could I enjoy, I don't know, like ribbon dancing or just hanging around next to a river for an afternoon um, without sort of getting bored or getting antsy. Um, even though that was, that was my goal to, to remake myself, to like learn how to, how to, how to, um, be more relaxed and be more open and expansive. Um, so I don't know, that was kind of the, the ongoing challenge. And I, I also was just constantly lonely, um, because I, I was traveling alone. Um, I was trying to figure out how do I open myself up to experiences and people while also um, making sure I was uh, staying safe. Like I, it it took some, I had to kind of like tread the line of figuring out um, how do I be a a young woman traveling alone and, um, uh, and also see what I want to see and experience what I want to experience. So that kind of, that was a something i i kept uh coming up against like i would i had some really scary hitchhiking um uh experiences i don't know I, I think there's a long legacy at utopian um in utopian spaces like this where uh people are taken advantage of um and so it was i kind of knowing that um i also was trying to figure out how do I let down my walls, but also not to let down my walls too much. Um, And I don't know, I, I, for uh, basically like, yeah, two months, I was, I was wandering around New Zealand, trying to figure out how to become someone I wasn't, dressing the part, trying to talk the part, you know, collecting crystals, um, meeting people, hanging out, but never quite um becoming the person that I wanted to become. And eventually, I think I just felt so um disappointed that um I I wasn't who I wanted to be that uh I I kind of short-circuited my own usual, I don't know, castle of protections or my own usual um, safety parameters and just did something really impulsive, which was in this case, eating this random mushroom that I found, um, (laughs) almost, almost in like a kind of Alice in Wonderland type way, I think of like, maybe this will make me grow giant, or maybe this will make me suddenly become a hippie. I don't know. Um, but I, um, after I ate it, I, I went to sleep and then, um, the next morning, I woke up and like sort of realized that it I could have not woken up, and that would have been really that that was not what I wanted, and um, that maybe I I it wasn't worth um, destroying myself just because I couldn't um, become a hippie. I could maybe um, accept some parts of who I was and and be okay with that, and that was better than.
1: Um, not getting to be anyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing
0: story. <laughs> that's so wild. Um, I, I guess, like, the, the next question that occurs to me is, what was so important to you about being a hippie that you were this devastated by discovering that you kind of couldn't do it?
3: Think I it it, ha, it was no fun. <laughs> I mean, it was no it was no fun being this like person caught in just the like neoliberal productivity um, treadmill. Like I said, like trying to optimize or just trying to jump through hoops to get external validation. And I I I didn't feel like that was who I was either. But I I felt so kind of um stuck on that path that it the idea of being a hippie of being someone who like walked around barefoot and um just was in tune with the universe and uh wore flowers in her hair that just seemed like an escape from um the the challenges of i don't know um of working probably to some extent. And that just seemed better. That seemed like the dream that seemed like, um, I wanted to believe that was who I was and that I wasn't, um, this, uh, type a perfectionist. And I, uh, I wanted to believe that, that, that identity was there for me if I, and I had just been living the wrong life, um, for 20 plus years. I, I just that i could make a radical change if i just tried hard enough which is of course like the most type a way to think about <laughs> um such a transformation um but that's it, it also i think finishing your undergraduate years there's this sense that um it's at least for me it was a kind of now or never moment um that i was i was a grown up now i had to figure out my life and um and and who I was going to be in the world. And so I I had to make this radical change if I wanted to um, not live how I had been living.
0: The kind of radical gesture of leaving your life to move to, you know, the upside down and join a join a, a commune, and then this gesture of like eating a mushroom in an Alice in Wonderlandy fashion—they seem sort of, I don't know, like twin impulses in a way.
3: Yeah, I I think it was all part of just the same push to. Um, step outside of myself and uh, they're both just efforts to be someone that I wasn't. Um, And I, I think one of the reasons why this memory has resurfaced for me recently is like I said, it's, it's 10 years roughly since that happened. And I think with this book coming out, I'm also thinking about when I decided to pursue writing at all and um, or to really make a go of it in terms of writing. Um, And when I think back to that time in New Zealand, the months that I was there, um, what I was also doing while I was there was constantly writing in my notebook. And a lot of that writing is me like recording what the hippies were telling me about how to how to be them um so it's full of notes like um be cool and listen to your heart etc which you know all all great advice um but it's also full of character portraits and descriptions of setting and um stories that had come into my head and i think what was also happening in new zealand and what really happened post mushroom mushroom was that i i kind of realized that i the in-between space, the between being this overachiever and um, being a hippie was being a writer and was um, uh, maybe thinking about <laughs> idealists and thinking about communes and thinking about uh, these kinds of things on the page and in some ways um, embracing an artistic lifestyle, but balancing that with the sort of sense of discipline and ambition that was also just, um, an intrinsic part of me. And so I, I think that, um, for that reason that that threshold feels especially, um, relevant right now. Had you been much of a writer before? I had taken a couple creative writing classes uh, in college, mostly on a whim, I went into my undergrad thinking I could be an economist, which was a um, a, a joke for me because <laughs> that was not <laughs> um, not my uh, forte. Um, and i I really wasn't. I really hadn't set out to. I, I know some people go to college and they're like, "I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to learn here." So. I took creative writing on a whim and then just couldn't help taking more um classes and but I still kind of hadn't accepted in my mind that this was something that I couldn't um continue uh in my life without doing. Um I was trying to still wiggle into other career paths that seemed more acceptable or more um uh that just seemed better for one reason or another. So
0: you eat the mushroom, you fall asleep, you wake up, and and how does your, what are the next, I don't know, like days, weeks, months look like? How did you
3: go from there to writing your first collection? Well, one thing I think I realized after eating the mushroom was that I, I had to get out of the particular situation I was also in, which was, I think, especially um, isolating in some ways. I was staying at that time at a, it, it built itself as like an organic food earthworks compound, but it really was just a family in a, um, an earthworks house with like one other guy living in a shack. On their property, and the guy in the shack was this amazing, um, real hippie. I would say who brewed all of his own kombucha and had really long hair and was so peaceful in his demeanor and just had uh, that hippie energy. Um, And they loved him. And so, in a way, there was just a real sense of comparison of like, oh, I'm I'm not that person, Um, and I'm also just feel like not very connected to the, um, the group dynamic here. So, um, I decided to move on from that situation and kind of keep going in my trip. And I did stay in New Zealand, um, a couple more months and had some crazy adventures in other communes, um, uh, including a former sex cult that was, uh, really bizarre, but, I think kind of mentally, I was also seeing beyond New Zealand and thinking about applying to grad school and um, just uh, experiencing everything I could while um, looking or, I don't know, visualizing uh, a life that was, was not me just becoming a hippie and, and dropping out of society, basically. And so when I got back, yeah, I, I did apply to grad school and, and so on and so forth.
0: What's felt important to you as a writer to translate about your time pursuing that kind of utopian relationship to society and, and the earth?
3: I think it's something that I, I write about in my stories and then in this novel because I think these utopian um, initiatives ha- have, a lot to teach us, um, about, um, problem solving in a, in a larger, larger society. And, um, usually, uh, a, an intentional community is a, a kind of reaction against something that just feels, um, wrong or broken about a larger society. So if you look at, say, the, um, the like um, 17th century transcendental communes um, like Brook Farm, they were reacting against gender equality, labor inequality. And I, I think that that's such a, a kind of fascinating um, uh, microcosm to explore. I think I'm always, uh, there's so much to learn just about the relationship between a community and an individual in, in these spaces. And um, I think uh, as someone who's really um, <laughs> worried about climate change, <laughs> I, it seemed to me like it would be useful to really explore a utopian relationship to climate change and um, what a, an intentional community might have to say about um, this crisis and how it might try to react and problem solve, um, uh, as a reaction to the the crisis.
0: Yeah. I noticed that the story or the plot, you know, this, the concept for Eleutheria appears in your first book, in your collection of short stories in a like very recognizable, though slightly changed form. And I was curious why, what it was about this story, if it was just the fact that climate change was the was sort of the problem at hand, or if there were other things about this story when it was a story that made it stick with you and kind of grow into this, this novel that I just read.
3: Yeah, it is, it is you're right, it is an expansion uh, in some ways of that story, Shark Fishing, which was in my collection of This New World, and I, even though it's the longest story in that collection, I just felt like there was more that I wanted to say and that there was more to unearth um, with regards to those characters, uh, that place. And I, I just couldn't let it go. And <laughs> I don't think I would recommend to anyone that they expand a short story into a novel because I think it... it uh, it might seem counterintuitive, but it, it requires a kind of, you have to break the story in order to reinvent it on a larger scale. And um, it's, uh, it's just a lot of time with those characters and um, with that place. And I think that presents a, a particular set of challenges. Um, but I, I, I think that um, I just couldn't let it go. I mean, if I can poke a
0: little bit more at that, was it the like, was it, was it the kind of thematic and political overtones? Was it a particular figure in the story that you, that, that was really sticking with you?
3: Well, the novel, um, the novel pushes the concept much further than it goes. And is also kind of asking the bigger question of what would it take to actively problem solve climate change and positions this um, fictional eco compound camp hope um, within that question and so I think the novel was an opportunity to um, to, to sort of imagine into that space and to um, try to use fiction as a space to um, think through what would go wrong, what might go right, what would happen if um, this uh, utopian enterprise really um, took things to an extreme. And, I mean, also on the topic of just extremity, I, I wanted to understand my main character better, who who does shift a little bit from short story um, to the novel. She has a a different name, but I wanted to understand her better. I wanted to understand why she would uh, leave her life behind and go to this island uninvited um, to join an enterprise that she knows nothing about, really, doesn't even know if it really exists. And I think I wanted to know why someone would take an extreme action um and it took me a long time to really get to know her and to understand her um and so but i but writing the novel let me let me do that
0: yeah there's something that i found so compelling about the fact that willa your main character here um in the novel is so she's so singularly driven and the way The way that it's written, you sort of understand that she becomes singularly driven to address climate, you know, disaster because of disaster that she has experienced, because of ways in which she is, has been, I don't know, subject to certain kinds of alienation or, I don't know if the word you would want to use is trauma, but like she's, she is so committed to Camp Hope, in part because she is, uh, she's driven to extremity by the extremity of her circumstances. And I was wondering if you felt like that was a, um, I wonder if you think that that is what's required for people to make big, big change. I mean, I won't give away the plot point, but one of, you know, what finally possibly drives the world in this novel to Take climate change seriously is something really, really extreme um, and really, really hard. And I I just I guess I wanted to hear you talk about the connection between damage and the ability to address
3: damage. I think that experiencing um experiencing trauma. Um can give a person uh, a a radically different perspective and can also give a person um, a new sense of compassion. It can give a person... um, It can just ultimately reframe their sense of what's important, um, what, what they prioritize. And so in this novel... I do ultimately offer a scenario in which climate change becomes very personal for almost everyone, um, and that um, causes a reaction. Um, And to me, that was a way, that was how, in the thought experiment, basically, of what would it take for everyone to mobilize against climate change? That seemed to be the A answer. Does that kind of get at what, what you're asking? It
0: does. Yeah. I guess the thing that I was reflecting on is that Willa is so effective and so committed in part because she feels like she has almost nothing, nothing else to lose. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's not how you would phrase that. That's one of the ways that I read it was that she's, she's, there's a desperation, um, to her life that isn't just about climate change but which is sort of funneled into addressing climate change and it seems like one of the things that you're doing in this book is playing with the question of whether or not desperation needs to feel that acute and that personal for everyone in order for systemic change to begin to address the damage of climate the, the,
3: the actual desperate state of the climate. I think that's that's definitely one way you can put it, and it's um, it's it's kind of sad to put it that way. Um, I think when it comes to climate change, um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to take, formulate. Take your my time. Response. Yeah, yeah. It's a big
0: and a big and like, I really like, you now, like sort of depressing question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, take your time.
3: I think one could say that the actions Willa takes and the actions that um, precipitate mass mobilization in the book, you could say that they stem from damage and they stem from trauma, but you could also say that they stem from love as well. And that they stem, and maybe it's a distorted form of love, but um, when it com- in the real world, when it comes to um, making changes and making pro-sustainability choices, I think we can act out of a place of fear and defensiveness, or we can act out of a place of compassion and love that is um, at once taking into account of um legacies of of oppression that have brought us here but that are also um maybe lovingly um and compassionately um trying to find ways to um build coalitions to protect the most marginalized populations to um right the wrongs of the past and maybe it takes a certain amount of of trauma and suffering to make that path visible and to make that path seem urgent and necessary, um, but um, that path is still open to us—that one of of compassion based activism. <laughs>
0: One of the things that I loved so much about Eleutheria is the way that you have captured and kind of excavated the various types of rhetorics and behaviors that that seem to coalesce around utopian experiments um, and utopian communities. There's such a great combination of the motivational language and the theoretical language and there's this very important you know book within a book where there's a, the attractive theory that has sort of brought Willa to Camp Hope and I wanted to know where you drew inspiration from or where, you know what you researched what you pulled from to kind of devise this this world of theory and rhetoric around this fictional place.
3: Yeah, the book um, really synthesizes so many different types of texts and personal experience and field work. So um, on one hand, it's drawing on my own experience um, working in the Bahamas and working on environmental enterprises, um, spending time with freegans, um, obviously, uh, being around utopian communities in New Zealand. Um, but then it's also bringing together, um, just scientific research on the trajectory of climate change, um, kind of sociological context. It's bringing together, um, uh, a lot of history. I read, um, uh, so much about just the, um, the kind of colonial enterprise of um, the early Americas and use that as a, um, a foundation for um, thinking about how these legacies of idealism and exploitation echo outward um, from the point of kind of Europeans arriving in the Americas and and how that's been kind of uh, repeated over and over again in these different theaters. Um, So yeah, it's, uh, you know, I did interviews, so it it really, um, it really brought together a lot.
0: Yeah. I was surprised to see though, actually, as I was reflecting on it, it made so much sense, but I, I hadn't expected to see this thread through the novel about kind of the earliest, colonial settlement uh, settlements in America and this sort of the the Christopher Columbus era um, Mm -hmm. myth-making in the book. And what, why did that feel important to you to include as this, uh, I don't know, counterpoint uh, to, to this, to this story that was happening in a kind of, I don't know, imagined present or imagined near future about, climate change?
3: Yeah, it always felt really important to have that historical thread. Um, I mean, in one sense, it does allow us to escape the tyranny of Willow's perspective, at least briefly, um, uh, periodically in the novel. But it also seemed really important to position a, um, a speculative um, eco compound in the Bahamas, uh, um, against this this backdrop of Puritans having um, arrived in the Bahamas, Christopher Columbus showing up and um, doing terrible things, um, pirates um, uh, doing their thing there, and just um, positioning this this speculative compound as as part of a, a larger story and hopefully by the end of the book showing, um, through character, um, through what happens, the fact that we really cannot address the problems of the future, um, without also looking backwards and reckoning with the past. I think even the best sort of, um, I don't know, plan for a, a sustainable future um, that is, you know, daring and innovative. If, to, if, that, if that plan doesn't address um, legacies of white supremacy and of colonial damage, then A, I don't think that that's a, a plan any, any of us want to participate in. And I think it will ultimately fail. I think the, the future has to be, or a sustainable future has to go hand in hand with social justice.
0: How has your your I don't know your thinking or your ethic toward writing about the world, the climate, the environment you know, just the the world around us changed since you I don't know since you began this this project or since you ate your mushroom.
3: <laughs> I think that. Since eating the mushroom, um, I've, I've been able to embrace, um, this, this artistic path of being a writer and, um, accepting kind of certain parts of myself and certain, um, just qualities and not, uh, not discounting them and looking for, um, I think there's a parallel here between figuring out how to both accept myself while also um, always working on, on learning and growing and, and trying to be a better person. And in the same way, when it comes to thinking about climate change and writing about climate change, um, I I think reading so much um, about it has in some ways maybe softened the hard edges of my own Ideological perspective. Um, Having written this book, I think I'm 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 much more open to, or I'm I believe much more in the importance of coalition building of um, bringing together groups of people who um, might differ in in many ways, but who are able to find common ground and use that common ground as a as a touchstone for for problem solving the climate crisis and I think um, that kind of softening of uh, of ideological edges and that um, movement towards um, flexibility and towards holding multiple things at the same time has been um, the other side of both the mushroom eating and of writing this novel.
0: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.